0: Is one red shoe. Well, it's finally arrived, our inaugural MotoGP episode. And joining me for this one is a guest who has spent almost 70 years listening to, reading about, watching, riding, and falling off motorcycles. He's seen a bunch of different eras of motorcycle racing and seen all of the Aussie champions come and go. He's also my dad, Ian Fearless Foster. We sat down earlier this year to capture his memories of a lifetime spent obsessing about motorcycles, and to get his predictions for the 2021 MotoGP season. Now, it didn't occur to him while we were talking, so I nearly got away with it, but when I dropped him home, he insisted I write down my predictions too. So, as a special bonus, if you listen all the way to the end of the show, you can check out my predictions for the season ahead. But first, let's hear from Fearless.
1: I started off when I was about 10, pushing me brothers, clapped out BSA around the yard trying to start it, and his velo and everything else, and that was where it started, but I actually had a friend whose father was a scramble champion, like he had about four Australian titles, but they had the records of the Isle of Man, and used to put these records on and you could hear all the bikes go past like the Norton's, Beezers and so forth. And that, that was where I sort of first started it and got interested in it and then later on, of course, I bought a bike and <laughs> managed to crash it all over the place but that was all right, that didn't matter and, yeah, that sort of went from there and then we used to buy the Green Horror to the Motorcycle News
0: why, why was it called the Green Horror?
1: Because it was all pitted in green.
0: Like green text?
1: Yep, green green paper. Green paper and green text? Some of it was, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that started in about 48, I think, they started bringing that out. Yeah, right. And they used to have a, it's a monthly one and, um, yeah, used to buy that and have a look at it and see what the Australians were doing overseas and then... In '57, a bloke called Keith Campbell won the 350 championship on a motor Guzzi.
0: So that was the that was the first Aussie to win a world championship overseas. Well, yeah, a world championship is obviously overseas.
1: Yes, <laughs> <laughs>
0: we can't run them in Australia, even though we'd like to.
1: Yeah, that was the first one, and then after that.
0: So that's that's we we're talking about this before before we started recording. So that's not widely recognised. Was it Keith Campbell? Yeah. Uh, so, a lot of people talk about Gardner being the first world champion. Yeah. So, that's the distinction with the premier class. So, the 350cc class was considered one of the lesser classes, I assume, at the time.
1: Yeah, and it still is. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: it doesn't exist anymore, the 350s.
1: No, that's true. It doesn't.
0: Because <laughs> they, they used to have a lot more classes too, didn't they? They had like.
1: Oh, they used to have 50cc's.
0: 50 50cc's. 50 that would have been loud, I imagine.
1: Yeah, well, even the 50cc's would pull over 100k's about 120 flat out on a
0: 50cc. Wow so they still have the 50cc's now but it's the little kids at yeah. the halftime in the supercross.
1: <laughs> yeah well that's the thing I mean it's the um, classes they had all these classes and you know you got when you got to say um, fast Freddie Spencer well he won on the I think he won the 350 and the 500 class in the one year because back then you could ride all the classes I mean, it he was fast and that was on a three-cylinder honda two-stroke of course
0: and you look at what goes into riding one race and it seems exhausting so like the amount of mental energy and effort that would go into winning two classes on the same day must be extraordinary
1: yeah well you'd have to adjust fairly much from a 350 to a 500 and being two-strokes, oh, that'd be a bit of a nightmare.
0: So just to roll back to the records you were talking about, like with the Isle of Man, so that would have been the four-stroke era mostly? Yes. And you're saying that you can start to tell the difference. You learn the difference between that's a Norton, that's a Triumph.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, you could after a while. You listen to it in a while, you could pick them all. The only thing I would have liked to have heard, the ones where Honda come in in 62 with a five-cylinder 125, that revved to 20,000. I would have loved to have been hearing that. And then they had a 250, which had four barrels on it, and it was whacking out 15,000 revs out of a four-stroke. must have had pistons the size of postage stamps in it.
0: (laughs) And so that's the appeal, is the distinguishing between the engine notes and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, that's what it was, because it was only a record. Like, there was no cameras or nothing. They just...
0: Did they did they commentate the place of the riders in the race or
1: not really they just it was all about listening to the different bikes that's extraordinary yeah that was going back well god that was going back into the 50s probably middle 50s
0: wow so so who were your heroes when when you first started getting into it like what drew you into it? was it the story about particular riders or
1: well yes to a degree but the main aim was to get a bike myself. That was what <laughs> it was all about, which I finally bought one for 20. Was it $20 or 20 quid? Oh, it must have been 20 quid. I bought one for 20 quid, a DKW 250 that I managed to crash all over the place. What's a DKW? It's a German one. <laughs> yeah, right. I've never even heard of that. Oh, there's lots of weird and wonderful <laughs> things. I've got a book at home that's got everything from A to Z of motorbikes wow. so <laughs> that, I'll,
0: have to, I'll have to go and have a look at the dkw and the a to z of motorcycles
1: yeah well it's because there was a lot of european bikes in australia as well like you had all your pommy bikes they were all the biggest stuff but it was all the montessas Boltacos, Czs. they were all the smaller bikes and they all they all went fairly well especially if you could get a montessa 250 in parlor they were really quick for a little bike they were yeah, also right. very light, and they handled well. The Japanese made really good engines, but they had spaghetti frames. Yeah,
0: right.
1: Even I bought a brand-new 68 350 Honda on the road for $606, and it'd pull 104 mile an hour in fourth gear, and it'd pull 104. Four mile an hour in fifth gear <laughs> made no difference, and that was with the rev counter around at 12,000 revs. <laughs> and I know because I finished up breaking the rev counter of needle off.
0: So, how much awareness did you have of the guys like Halewood and um, Agostini and those guys back then?
1: Well, Hailwood was probably the first hero that I had as motorbike racing, and then you say like Agostini, but biggest problem was with him he was on works bikes and hardly anybody else had works bikes the Australians would go over there with a old Max Norton or a Gold Star BSA 500 and try to win but in those days you got start money so if you could get to the start line and the flag dropped and away you went or you pushed it off in those days you had to push to start it and you'd ride the 350 class and get your start money then you'd front up in the five hundred for the start money, and you'd do a lap and have something mysterious thing go wrong with your bike so you didn't have to flog it into the grounds. And that's what they did. They were very clever, the Australian. That's the only way the Australian blokes could compete in Europe.
0: Yeah right.
1: So they they used to do it. Uh Bloke Quincy, that's the father. He was right into doing that. Then his son Ray Quincy went over and was racing. But I'm not sure what class he was racing in. Probably 350 and he crashed in Germany and he's a paraplegic. He's in his wheelchair. Uh, when around the late 60s, early 70s, I used to go to Melbourne and do all the motorbike shops because they were all in Elizabeth Street, except for Bert Flood. He was out at um, uh, Whitehorse Road and, and Ron Angel was out there as well. But most of it was in Elizabeth Street. So, you know, you had Pratt and Osborne for BMW. And, um can't remember who the Honda one was and I used to go into the Quincy's <laughs> they had that um rocker that used to play for Collywood in there selling bikes <laughs> he was uh not the brightest salesman I've ever come across but still
0: he wasn't he wasn't particularly knowledgeable about motorcycles
1: no <laughs> like he said he sold one in nine months before he left <laughs>
0: I remember there was a period there where Elizabeth Street was like a sea of motorcycles because they'd bring them out on the footpath.
1: Yeah, and everybody could pull up on the footpath. And just beside the Honda shop, there was a road and they had all the bikes in the middle of the road, like there was a road each side and they had all bikes and there was hundreds of them. And that was especially for the bikes. But a lot of them used to just pull up on the footpath anyway, they didn't care because they didn't get booked those days for doing that. And then the government decided years later, oh, well, we can make some money out of this. <laughs> so everybody got a ticket.
0: So let's fast forward a little bit to um, talk a bit about Wayne Gardner. Did he stand out in the local competition?
1: Oh, yeah, he did. He was in the um, Swan Insurance. There was a lot of overseas riders coming out for there. There was a lot of good riders in Australia too, like AJ Johnson. And he'd come from down the Morning Peninsula below Melbourne. He was... He was he was really interesting bloke because he drove dozers and the hydraulics blew three of his fingers off. So he only had, he had a his thumb and main finger and that was all he had on his right hand. Wow, on the throttle hand? A throttle hand and he was a top rider. Wow. He was one of my favourites because he rode Hondas because I'm a Honda, prefer Hondas <laughs> to anything else. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was good. Yeah, Gardner was good. He had the... The, uh, whatever it is you've got to have to win titles you've got to, you've got to be nearly excessive about it and that's the same with stoner Gardner, doing jack miller they're all you've all got the thing you've got to win 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 yeah uh,
0: and on that you notice it makes some of the, some of those names you mentioned they tend to be a little bit more dour yes you stoners they tend to not the class clown like Jack Miller is these days. They tend to be more the more dour and focused, and I think, I think that builds into your success. Even doing like,
1: yeah, well, if you look at Stone, he's a classic example of a bloke that started riding at four years old in the under nines in motocross, or probably scrambles motocross then. And by the time he was fourteen, he amassed seventy titles. Which then he packed up and went to England (laughs) because you could ride in England at 14. Couldn't do that in Australia. You had to be 16 to ride road racing.
0: Yeah, I think that's what I was asking with Gardner as well because, like, I don't have a sense of it myself. But I remember when Gardner was big on the international scene. I was Mm. just wondering, like, because I know a lot of the riders had to go to Europe to get the attention of the factories.
1: Yeah, well, in Gardner's case, he got the attention of the factories because there was a lot of, in the Swan Insurance, there was a lot of um, international riders come out from England, America and wherever. And, uh, yeah, they used to put in in the Swan Insurance. And, uh, yeah, and then, of course, they had the cash roll six hour, which was... Basically, a local debacle. Apart from Crosby, had come over from New Zealand. Graham Crosby, he was runner-up in the world title. He, he should have won that. He was really good, top rider.
0: So, riders like Crosby and that coming to Australia was what drew the attention to get the guys known to ride overseas.
1: Yeah, and then they'd have to pack up and go to England and ride in in England and then finally when you won up enough races you started to get noticed by the bigger factories
0: so that seems to be starting to build up again with things like the Asia Talent Cup like they're running that down at the tail and bend there yeah and so that that's again bringing that attention you see more and more of the local kids getting that opportunity to ride at that level
1: yeah uh, the big thing is now is television I mean they have cameras everywhere and uh, back in the old days if you had a camera and uh, and you, all you got was blokes going past in a blur as you take photos. So, yeah, and now, like, the thing is, it's mobile phones or smartphones, video cameras, everybody can do everything these days, where in the old days you could do nothing. So yeah, yeah,
0: you're not waiting for the one, what did you say, it was one bridge where they recorded the bikes going past and that was it. That yeah. was all you got. <laughs> that was all you got <laughs> earlier on.
1: In the, so, yeah, but now it's full on. You can watch every race, every practice, every everything.
0: So were you surprised that Gardner was the um, first Aussie guy to make it as the world champion or was it something that seemed...
1: Well, I thought he was going to because he had the will to win and um, I saw him racing in Japan in the wet and he slid off the bike. He got back on and he went right back up to about third and then off he went and broke a leg, which is basically what Marquez did last year.
0: Yeah, it, it's a fine line, isn't it? And I think uh, young Remy is sort of trying to adapt to it as well because he had that period, particularly at the start of this season, where he had that one crash where he you could see he really got down on himself for it. And then I think he's starting to build that discipline of maybe today, second place will have to be enough.
1: Well, he's a very interesting case. I watch him with great interest. I think he'll eventually make it to the big time and, uh, yeah, he's probably got what it takes. There's a lot of riders that ride for the money and that's all they do. They get onto a works team and, you know, win one now and again, run second or fifth or whatever, and they think, yeah, well, that's good. I mean, classic example is Danny Pedrosa, a runner-up a few times. He was on his day. He was unbeatable, but the trouble was... He couldn't put it all together and have it consistent. So um, what was that American guy did that too? Randy, Randy Yeah, He was runner-up two or three times too. But the funny thing about Americans is they've all got personality bypasses.
0: That's <laughs> yeah, what Barry Sheen's famous observation, wasn't it?
1: Yes. Well, he was my next person I like. I've got basically three people I like. In motor racing, I got Hailwood, Sheen, and Marquez. I saw the skip Mick I know Mick i I met Mick Doohan. He's got great guy.
0: What was it? What was what was that like? What was that experience like meeting Doohan?
1: Well, the first thing I shook, shook hit me hand. He just about broke every bone in me hand. <laughs> he's very strong
0: wrists. He's not a particularly big guy either, though, is he?
1: No, he's not. He's he's not as big as I thought he'd be. be actually, because on television they look fairly big
0: he looks big for a gp racer he, and then he looks like most gp racers not big for a normal person
1: no it's well this is a the thing these days the average height's probably six foot four or five where i mean when i was a young bloke and playing football i was 5 11 and i was a tall wingman because <laughs> everybody was about five foot six so yeah it's quite funny when they do that the different sizes of blokes and that's probably Jack Miller's problem. He's probably too big and heavy. I don't, I
0: don't think Jack's that big a guy. He does look slightly bigger framed than the other guys, but he's about the same. He'd be about the same build as Quattararo.
1: Yeah, probably. It's hard to tell looking at it on television because they do close ups and they look like they're gorillas, but then they take it, look it away a bit, he doesn't look so big. I find it rather interesting looking at all the Grand Prix riders. You know, you look at this. Well, last year you got a bloke on the Suki mare had won the title and he only won it because he consistently finished where the rest of them stuck it into the bushes whenever they could and that was the problem. And as for Yamaha, I think they want to go back five years and drag one of their bikes out five years ago and stick a new motor in it and they might go better.
0: (laughs) They're having a weird leapfrog thing where last year's bike seems to be better than this year's bike. Yeah. And then the next year they have the same issue. So it's in this weird decline.
1: Yeah, I think their biggest problem is they built all their bikes for Valentino. And I think they built in all the things that were wrong with it.
0: Well, it was interesting what Vinales was saying about Crotchlow being signed um, as their test rider. He was talking about having that strong voice, the strong personality to get his way as well. So you sort of get the impression that Vinales feels like he hasn't been listened to mm. um, and th- they're not hearing that whatever it is isn't working and we all know that Cal's not going to be shy <laughs> when it comes to explaining what he doesn't like about a bike.
1: Yes, I think the problem is with Valentino, he's got all yes men around him. And when you've got all the yes men around you, you're not fixing the problem.
0: That was something I heard Jeremy Burgess observe as well. That was one of the tough things with working with Valley was convincing him like yep, the your way is not the only way. You're going to have to try someone else's way and maybe that will get an improvement. But it must be, I mean, it must be really difficult for that guy. Like he's he's one of those unique people that has lived most of his life in that bubble. Well, so his frame of reference is not what you would normally expect.
1: No, he's a great writer and he's a great showman, probably not as good as uh, Sheen, but yeah, he's, <laughs> uh, he's uh, very talented. I think he's probably gone a year too long, but um, he knows nothing else, so you've got to keep racing.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, he had a bit of a mixed bag this year with being with the interruption with the COVID, but um I absolutely love him celebrating to an empty stand. I thought that was probably a highlight of last year for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's a bit like that. I think if he could get the bike that suited him without his input, he might do a lot better. See, that's the thing with Australians. Nearly all the Australians, like McGee for starters, he was a mechanic, they know how to set bikes up. And a lot of the early Australians all had to set know how to set their bikes up because they never had half a dozen mechanics and managers and all the rest of it. I mean that all come in about just before Wayne Gardner won a title where they got umpteen people in the garage to do everything. They got a bloke just to, to wipe his visor down for him. I mean, it's it sort of got a bit out of hand how many people they got running around in there.
0: So why Mark Marquez? Why do you, why do you back him? Because he's one of those riders, he's a bit polarising. There's there's people that love him and there's people that can't stand him.
1: Well, after looking at motorbike racing for about 60-odd years, I look at him, he won, what, seven or eight titles in 10 years. It's taken Valley about 20 or more to <laughs> win nine. So he's, I don't know, there's just something about him that... It is just one of those blokes you look at and think, yeah, like he can win this, even if he's down in fifteenth place. I mean, how? The, I mean, look at Valentino; he should have won the title a couple of years back, was all his stupid stuff he did, trying to push people off bikes and all <laughs> that. And he started from the back of the grid, and he had to come third to win the title, and he come fourth. I mean, to come from the back of the grid to get up to there was pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, that was a, that was an interesting um, sort of an anomaly with Rossi, where he was racing Lorenzo for the title, hmm. and he got up in his head about Marquez, which was quite odd. Like <laughs> he sort of manifested his own his own distraction, because oh, Marquez was out of the title by then. Yeah, which was I think Rossi's complaint is that Marquez was out of the title and still pushing him in the races, but. I think if you ran across a car park and Mark Marquez was trying to get across there first, he'd turn it into a race. He's that kind of guy. He's just Yeah,
1: it, it is. It's so competitive. It's really competitive. And what I can't... What really gets me about motorbike racing these days, they're doing 350 down the straight and they've got to get their brakes within about six inches. If they go six inches too far... They run off the track at the end, and if they get a tailwind, what really upsets them, places like Phillip Island, they get a tailwind, they over rev, and they go straight ahead because of another five or 10 Ks faster. And even though they've hit theirs right on the spot, that little bit extra wind pushes them a bit further.
0: That, that's one of the things I find mind boggling these days is like you look at the timesheets and you've got. 20 guys are separated by less than a second yeah. they're riding completely different bikes completely yeah. different setups different like you've got the kdms have got the steel frames um totally different riders different shapes sizes yeah. concentration they're within tenths and even hundreds of a second lap after lap after lap and you think how do you get something so precise and then one step further how do you get an advantage to be the guy that wins I think that's where, for me, that's where my admiration for Marquez comes from. He finds a way to get that little bit more than the next guy.
1: Yeah, it's a bit like Mick Dillon that way. Mick Dillon used to be able to find that little extra just when he needed. Although Mick was good at psyching the opposition out. (laughs) Oh, I think I'll put the big bang engine into this week. That'll fix him.
0: Yeah, that was the big thing with him and Creville or Crivier. Oh, yeah. Is it
1: Crivier?
0: Crivier, yeah. How, how when he had the, uh, when they, they were sharing data because they're, they're, they're teammates and so he wicked it up. So the thing was just about unrideable.
1: Yeah, precisely. That's how you've got to get rid of the opposition. <laughs> this, this business about teammate is uh, a bit of a furphy, I think. I think they're both in riding Hondas or Yamahas, but they both want to win. So they're not going to give the other one any advantage if they can help it. So that's the way it is. It doesn't matter if you're in the same team. They both want to be number one.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think once you're out of the actual championship, beating your teammate is the priority. Because yeah. Because you want to get the bike the next year and you want to be the guy that the mechanics listen to to make the bike for you because you're the better chance to win. Well, that's in their theory, yes. We, we saw that play out with Ducati. That they bring Petrucci onto the Ducati. Mm. And last season he even when he won the race announced that he was there to support Divisioso. He's yeah. like, I'm I'm here to back Dovi up. And yeah. like I watched that press conference and almost I thought, he's not gonna win another race this year. He's always talked himself out of it.
1: And the thing was he never did any good after that. He was back in the middle of the pack.
0: Yeah, for, for that season he had the he had the win this year after he'd decided that he was going to go to KTM. But um, it's an interesting mindset, and I think that might have been one of the sticking points with bringing Miller into the team. I think Davizioso could see the writing on the wall about like who Gigi Delignano is going to listen to.
1: Yeah, Jack's an interesting bloke as well. It's um, it's taken him a while to get up there, and it's a bit like Stoney. The Stone started on the Honda with the. Uh, the MLC mob or whatever they are and he crashed at 9 out of 18 races and then he goes to Ducati and he gets an 800 it's absolute 20 k's an hour faster down the straight he had to win a title on it because it was a, so much better so and then of course we know what happened Valentino went and he was going to play buggery and and didn't even win a race in two years so uh. Doesn't matter how much talent you think you got, you got to have the bike and everybody about you to get you over the line. I mean, I think that was basically when he went to Ducati was the end of JB, because JB said, "Well, he's not putting in; he's riding about eight tenths instead of ten tenths, and you're not going to win a title doing that." But um,
0: they just came back to Yamaha with him. Hmm. They did. How many seasons did they do at Yamaha together?
1: lots <laughs> rossi
0: and and burgess
1: yeah he did lots because dilly all his titles was with jb
0: it was kind of strange when he he made the change
1: mm. oh jb's another interesting bloke he won the master of mac park <laughs> and, and then he thought he, he wasn't good enough well i don't know what he thought he thought there was more probably more money in being a, a manager start off as a banner man wind up as a manager and all Rossi's wonderful titles, and he's got more titles than Rossi. Jeremy Burgess as a team manager. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, Rossi's got nine. Jeremy's got ten uh, 12. Because <laughs> I follow I follow a bit of the local stuff, but the main focus is the Grand Prix. But, yeah, I mean, you look at Stoner. He started at four, and, but he... Road to 14 with all them tiles went over there and he really put in to get where he was but I think that's what happened he got to what 27 and retired I think he just had burnout he'd been in the game that long and um, I think it just got to him in the end
0: that that's something
1: that's interesting
0: to I, I mean I was reflecting on that before the season started for Marquez as well as like what's going to continue to motivate him to keep risking it at that level how does he manifest new goals? Because he like he won like daylight was second place and mm-hmm. and twilight was third place last season, uh, twenty nineteen. Yeah. and it seemed like okay, who's going to be second place this year?
1: Well, I would say his motivation is to beat Rossi.
0: Uh to beat his overall title count.
1: Yes, that's that'll be the motivation because Rossi's got nine, he's got eight, and I think he wants. 10 and I reckon when he gets to 10 that'll be about it for him.
0: Well he's also now got that whole narrative around the comeback because missing that whole season and now they're saying that he might struggle to get back this season with the infection and the extra um, surgeries so that becomes a narrative in itself is like can he be the guy that comes back and
1: Win it all? does
0: it again after the big injury?
1: Well it depends on how bad it is and if he can get through the first four or five races without crashing and finishing in the top ten and then launch it from there, he can probably win the title. But there's a lot of ifs, buts and maybes in that. And like there's some good guys out there, KDMs are flying and even Suzuki are flying along fairly well. Uh, And the two bikes are are probably the worst in the paddock of Honda and Yamaha. What did you think
0: of Alex Marquez's season?
1: Alex... Yeah, he did all right till he got near the end of the season and fell off when he didn't need to because he was going to be Rookie of the Year and um, I think the pressure got to him a bit. But he was he was very smart. He circulated around 14th, 15th, 10th and he's learning the business and that's what you've got to do. You're not going to come out first year and blow their doors off or else you're his brother. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, he's got that, I mean, the, the commentators talk about it all the time. He's having to ride with that weight of expectation. But, um, like, I'm not an Mar- Alex Marquez fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm one of those guys that bears a grudge. I still remember him sliding up the inside of Jack and Jap tipping off and losing the title by a couple of points, and we tend to bear a grudge. But even grudgingly, I have to say, the, the season he put together under the circumstances was pretty impressive.
1: Oh, yeah, it was. It's, um, yeah, he he looked at it like, well, I'm not going to win a lot of races. i am basically got to learn the business, and he's learning the business on probably the worst bike on the track. It, yeah, hey, it's hey, probably
0: the hardest one to get your head around, yeah. like riding a MotoGP bike for the first time, and it doesn't turn. And we know it doesn't turn because Cal mentioned it occasionally. <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, and I think that's the problem with the Ducati. It doesn't turn either. It's fast, and with Jack on it, they destroy the tyres because of the – The way they've got it set up. And that's Jack's got to learn to not flog the tyres into the ground. It's all right to be pushing and trying to pass people. You're better off to sit back for the first 20 laps and then in the last five say, right, pull the pin and go for broke.
0: I think Valencia and Porto Mayo showed that he's made that evolution. I think that's watching him and Franco to me, both those guys were a cut above the way they were riding in those races.
1: Yeah, well, they. I think he towards the end of the season he sort of woke up that destroying his tires early in the race wasn't a good move.
0: I think he, I think he knew that all along. It was just trying to figure out because I mean that's the thing that's been Dovey's thing, is, mm. and there were a couple of times where I was thinking Dovey was hanging back in seventh eighth place, and you're sort of one you know queuing up the jaws music because yeah. that tend to be the obvious thing. He keeps consistent and then he mows them down at the end of the race, but he he was starting to struggle to do that. Yeah, and. I do wonder whether it was because, you know, the factory's starting to make adjustments, getting ready for the new guys being on the main bikes and stopping to listen to too much of Dovi's input.
1: Well, that's probably right too. I don't know about Ducati. So they've, they've got the, the mumbo. They're fast in a straight line. But they don't turn real good. If they could get their turn and right, they'd be right up there. I mean, you look at it, it could be anybody's this year. Like KDM are come in leaps and bounds. Suzuki's are going along sneaking along, just winning, not winning the races, being in second and third. And the whole thing is, is accumulating points. There's no good winning it and binning it in the next race. You don't get nothing for laying on the side of the track. You're better off. And and that's another thing with Marquez. He won't settle for second, where a lot of times he should settle for second instead of going for a broke. And, um... It's all about accumulating points. You don't have to win every race. As you see, Blake won one race on a Suzuki, wins the title because he's smart. He's a lot smarter than a lot of people give him credit for. Me,
0: he had a move that he put on Rossi, like early on in the season, that was just breathtaking. Yeah. It was one of those moments where, and he'd figured out the whole tire deal because yeah. you know the Suzukis do tend to preserve their tires oh, fairly fair. well. So you could see a couple of times he would hang back and then make a bit of a charge. And I, I, I think he's, I mean, he's a world champion, so any praise you give him seems like, um, you know, Monday quarterbacking. But yeah. you've got um, Rins, who's the more experienced yeah. rider. and I mean, Rins started the season injured, but yeah. Rins does that thing where he gets into second, third place. You can almost start counting the laps until he's going to slide off. Awesome. Whereas Mir seems to hang it together. That, the... um
1: the thing is, you've got to look at the Suzuki's are qualifying 12th, 14th, and they're getting up to seconds and thirds. What would they do if they qualified in the front row, both of them?
0: Well, that's the other thing that's interesting. Um, we haven't spoken about Fabio, fabulous Fabio Quattararo, and, the, the, like, his one-lap pace is amazing. Yeah. And that's when you start to get an understanding of, like, well, this guy is clearly over one lap the fastest guy on the track by quite a stretch and yet five laps into the race he's back in the mix generally speaking unless he like on the odd occasion he got to run away and win the race and that's when you start to get an appreciation for you know you've got to put 24 laps together yeah so going out in fp3 and fp4 and being the fastest guy on the track doesn't mean anything if you can't do that for 23 laps
1: yeah well i mean that's what mick dillon used to do he never qualified on pole all that often i mean he probably got 50 poles in his whole career but he used to do a lot of work setting up the bike and the tires for the race not the, the, the one lap wonder and that shows that yamaha yeah they're good in one lap but the thing is he'll take quite a hour or probably take a couple more years and then he should be should win a title if he lasts that long of course
0: yeah, it's going to be interesting. He's undeniably fast.
1: Oh, yeah, he is, but he's got to be able to put it together for the race.
0: But he's he's a bit like the Collingwood of MotoGP. <laughs> he gets in front and gets all the expectation on him and he starts to get the wobbles.
1: That's about it, yeah. He's a pretty good rider, but yeah, he's got to be able to put it together every race. You don't have to win them. You don't want to be in third, fourth, fifth, pick up points. Pick up points It's all about racing.
0: So what's what's your prediction for 2021? Let's let's get it on record so that we can look back at the end of the year and have a bit of a chuckle at you. (laughs) Oh, good on you.
1: Let me see. Um, I will go for the bloke on, is it Binder on the KTM? Binder on the
0: KTM?
1: I reckon he's got a big chance. It'll depend on how well Marquez comes back if he doesn't fall off and injure himself. He's probably probably second, and who will I put third? Oh, um, Maybe oh, I'll put Jack Miller for third. <laughs> He's been a bit of a disappointment, Jack has to me. Really? Yeah, every time I pick him. Because, see, <laughs> a friend and I have a pick and competition, and every time I pick Jack, something happens and he goes nowhere. So,
0: So it's your fault?
1: Yeah, because I picked him.
0: (laughs) He can't handle the weight of your expectation. That's what it is. You're putting too much pressure on the lad.
1: Well, that's it. And um, (laughs) what do we have? How many races do we have this season? But I only picked two winners for the whole year. (laughs) And me offside, I only picked one, so I won. Whoa. And this has been going on for year after year after year. I got all these books with who won what, why. I write it all down. And then I get it out next week, it means nothing.
0: <laughs> There's no clear science to it?
1: No. And then Carl's gone and retired, so that's stuffed. that, so I can't have him in it anymore, where he's come in second or third or whatever, so I've got to throw him out. So,
0: <laughs> Cal, that's uh, Lorenzo's bronze medal rider, isn't it? That's him. He's, he's the bronze standard. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> always gold standard.
1: Yes, yeah, so I was looking at the computer on that and I had to <laughs> laugh at that. There's a bloke that got on a Honda, and it spat him off, and he completely fell apart.
0: He literally fell apart though, like he broke his shoulder and neck, and like yeah, like that was some scary injuries.
1: But he never come back from that, and I know exactly how he feels because <laughs> I've done the same thing on my big CCM. I went splat, rattle, bang, and I completely lost confidence. I went out. On my bike, we used to go riding out in the pines and it was like Miss Daisy, or was chug, 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 chug.
0: <laughs> is there anyone that has any doubt that Marquez will have his confidence up when he gets back on a bike?
1: Oh, yeah, he will. I think,
0: I, think the, I think the question mark is whether he'll have confidence in the shoulder.
1: Well, that's the thing, and it'll probably take five or six races for him to figure out, will I go for it or not? And he's another bloke that's got to look at it, don't try to win every race accumulate points and that's where it all comes down to and and that's the, the that's the problem with all of them they all want to win the race you've got to think about points
0: well thanks for your time i think we'll wrap it up there
1: yeah no worries
0: and uh, we'll keep an eye on your predictions so we've got brad binder
1: yeah well i like to go for something a bit way out in the that's, left field that's not a bad pick yeah well we'll wait and see and I'll probably, he'll probably fall off and break a leg and that'll be the end Yeah, he'll
0: probably put the mozzers on Binder for the season. <laughs> yeah. So if, if Brad Binder has a bad season, he knows who to come and see.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hope he doesn't see that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yep.
0: All right. Here are my picks for 2021. So third place is my most conservative pick. I'm going with Joanne Mir. I think if the Suzuki start qualifying well, they'll be hard to beat, but I don't think they'll get there with consistency alone. I think Mir will find it difficult to repeat after last year, especially with the extra attention that comes with the crown. For second, I'm going with Franco Morbidelli. He's a proven champion in Moto2, and his back half of the season last year was spectacular. Given Yamaha's bizarre forward-backward development rhythm, he might be able to make the most out of last year's bike, assuming, of course, his engines don't start going pop. First with the head, now with the heart. I'm backing Jack Miller to win the title. I think if he can continue his trajectory from the past few years and make the most out of having the might of the Bologna factory at his disposal, Jack can get the job done. I think it'll really come down to how he handles the emotions that swirl around the red shed of Ducati, but I reckon he's ready. Why no Marquez? Well, if the rumours are true, he may not even make it to round one. But if he does, he'll be riding through a recovery on a bike that hasn't been specifically designed for him. I'm not saying he can't win, but if he does, it'll be one for the ages. So there are the picks. For Fearless, you've got Binder, Marquez and Miller in 1, 2 and 3. And for me, I'm going with Miller, Morbidelli and Mia in that order. We'll try to check back in in the middle of the season to see how we're going. Until then, thanks for listening.